0: Good morning, Sun Valley. Good to see you here today. So thankful to gather with God's people and praise His name and then hear from His Word. What a blessing. <clears throat> well, we're, we're just uh, at the front end of our study in the Gospel of Mark. Um, anxious to continue this uh, study as we look now into the verses that you just heard read. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful short uh, crisp uh, account of the, the life and ministry of Jesus, and I think that you'll you'll realize if you haven't already that this was written for us who have a short attention span, and. Uh, if you're in that group, this is the perfect place to be to study of the Gospel of Mark because he just keeps you on your toes. You have to be looking left and right. Your head has to be on a swivel. You know, what's he going to say next? You know, and then he throws another immediately at you, and you're like, what's going on here? So this is kind of where we're at, and, and I'm, I'm excited about it because, um, because of the, the, the preciseness and the crispness and the intensity of Mark's communication. I, I really am thankful that that uh, we're here and the Lord has led us here for this purpose. So if you were going to start a Forbes top 100, okay, 500, top 500 uh, business, assuming that you could do that, what would be the ingredients to your company? What would you think would be important to have in place? I, I think that... We have all sorts of models, don't we, that we could look at of companies that are successful, that have that have been long-lasting, that have seen, you know, all sorts of of benefit, um, and they all have very similar strategies to start their companies. Uh, and there are some, I think, overarching principles that that we'd have to observe if we're going to build something that's going to be successful, that's going to last. I think th- there's two areas that I particularly that come to mind, especially after studying the passage in front of us. But we must establish authority in our field, right? We must know what we're talking about, have something to offer, we must have authority in our field, and secondly, we must have a strategy of some sort, a a successful strategy, something that would work to make this happen. Well, we have here Mark's record of Jesus doing this very thing. Jesus implementing a ministry, a one that will be successful, that has been long-lasting since he started this ministry, and there are some elements here in the passage that was read for you earlier that I think will encourage your heart. All right. So if Jesus is going to build something that would that would solve chaos, which is Mark's argument, Jesus is the one from heaven who solves our chaos. If Jesus is going to build something that is going to solve our chaos and that will last, he's going to have to demonstrate that he has more authority than the one who has caused the chaos. Right? He's going to have to have authority in his field of expertise. Jesus is going to have to demonstrate that he can rescue sinners from the very one who's put sinners in captivity. Okay, this is, I think this is basic understanding of moving forward in any type of a uh, venture. So let's look at these two areas that I think are laid out here pretty clearly, succinctly in these verses. At, At Jesus's ministry, what does he do first? Point number one is that he's going to establish his authority in three different arenas. Establish his authority in three arenas. And then he's going to implement a strategy. All right, establish authority, implement a strategy. I wanna to talk to you about both of those things this morning. First of all, to demonstrate Jesus' authority, Mark records three events here in these, in these uh, verses that present an indisputable authority of Jesus Christ in three critical areas. First, over the enemy. All right, Jesus' authority, Mark says, is over the enemy, capital E. And he, and he shows that in verses 12 and 13. The famous famous temptation of Christ in the wilderness, right? Who did he meet in the wilderness? The enemy, right? Satan. And it was in that setting that Mark says, look, look, see what Jesus has done. He has established authority over the enemy. If Jesus is going to set up this kingdom on earth, he's going to need to overthrow the ruler of this earthly realm. And who is that? Satan, right? Right? This is what Jesus says, what Paul said. This is what Jesus said about throwing over, overthrowing Satan, rather. Mark chapter 3, verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus was saying, I've got to come in here into his kingdom, into his world, and establish authority if I'm ever going to win this battle. If I'm going to set up a lasting and successful ministry, i got to deal with Satan, right? This is what's going on here. So this is exactly what Jesus did in the wilderness with Satan. He, he bound Satan, the strong man, and he established his authority over him, basically. So as soon as Jesus came out of the waters of baptism, anointed of the Holy Spirit, commissioned by the Father, he was sent into this confrontation with Satan, by the Holy Spirit, right? God sent him into that temptation. It wasn't that like Satan trapped him in a weak moment. No, God sent Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted so that he could establish his authority over the enemy. Does that make sense to you? Good, that's good. So the result here is clear, right? The, the tone has been set by Jesus Christ uh, the results are in, Satan lost, Jesus won that confrontation. Jesus establishes authority over Satan. It's clear, especially if you look at Matthew 4. It is written, it is written, it is written. And then the final one, Satan, be gone because it is written. Remember that? We talked about that last week. So if there was any hope in Satan's mind of unseating the king or undermining his authority, I think it was pretty clear after this encounter in the wilderness that there was no hope of that happening, right? Jesus convincingly established his authority over Satan in that setting. So this wilderness testing was Satan's best shot of getting Jesus to fail. And, of course, God set this up to accomplish the very things that happened. What's the application? And, by the way, sometimes I I want to tell you how I apply Scripture for you. Sometimes I apply scripture at the end of the sermon. I, I, I talk to you. I preach to you. I, I try to get into your heart and mind with the word of God. And then I say, and here's how it should be applied to your life. And then other times, like today, I apply point by point as we go through because there's so much application here. What do you think the application might be if you were in my shoes that you would say to the people of Sun Valley Church if you heard that Jesus has established his authority over the enemy? He doesn't control us, right? The enemy does not control us, God's people. This is something you must keep in mind. He is to be respected, right? Satan's to be respected, but he's not to be feared. He's been defeated by our Savior, Jesus Christ. And if we are in Christ, what's that make us? Victors, right? We have been joined with Christ, so we are now co-conquerors over Satan, the enemy. This is a wonderful piece of application for you in your Christian life. You don't have to submit to the enemy's tricks. You don't have to say, oh, he's so strong and I'm so weak. No, you are in Christ, so you have defeated the enemy with Christ. I hope you hear that. So <clears throat> next, the next area or realm that Mark records that Jesus establishes his authority, the first is against the enemy. The second is over the enemy's weapons. If you had to tell someone these are the enemy's weapons or these are Satan's weapons, what would you include? Temptation, sin, disease, chaos, all these things that hit us in the face every single day that we live. Those are his weapons. And here, Mark is saying that Jesus demonstrated power over Satan's weaponry how did he do that well look at verses 14 and 15 again with me now after John was arrested Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand repent and believe in the gospel now let me unpack those words for you all right some of them were marks but the the quotes obviously were from Jesus Who is it that makes up the kingdom of God? Forgiven people, right? Believers, people who've embraced Christ. Those are the ones who are actually in the kingdom. God's kingdom is is where obedience trumps rebellion. God's kingdom is full of people who have decided to follow Jesus instead of follow the world or follow the prince and power of this world. Right? We've decided we're going to, instead of following the world and Satan, we're going to follow Jesus and his kingdom. That's who makes up the kingdom of God, right? We need to, we need to keep this in mind, that the style of Mark's writing is, is brief and, and short, and his intent is to keep you interested. And so he skips pretty large portions of Jesus' ministry that we might think is important. Look at verses 14 and 15 again. What's it say right off the bat? Now after John was arrested... John the Baptist was arrested. How far into Jesus' ministry was John the Baptist arrested? At least six months. He'd already been preaching, casting out demons, cleansing the temple, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, for six months when verses 14 and 15 come into view. He had already been active in establishing his authority over Satan, over the weapons of Satan, and so we're into his ministry by a significant degree. His baptism was in Judea, which is in the south, where his first part of the ministry, inclu- including the baptism of, I mean, the, the cleansing of the temple, his trip through Samaria, and John 4, you remember that story. But Bar- Mark begins the record of Jesus' ministry here in Galilee and picks the, up the story after John was arrested. He was, he was preaching this entire time, this six months, about himself about him, him being God's solution to chaos, about him being the savior of all mankind, the forgiver of sins. He had been preaching this for six months up to this point. So this kingdom that Jesus was speaking of is a spiritual kingdom where all the citizens of that kingdom were people who had confessed their sins and embraced the king of that kingdom, Jesus Christ, who believed the message of the gospel who believed that Jesus had authority over the enemy, who believed that Jesus could conquer sin. That's what Jesus had been preaching. All right? So the only way that this forgiveness could be realized, this conquering of or overriding the weapons of the enemy, the only way that this could be realized, if Jesus actually had authority to forgive sins. That's the only way it could happen. He had to have authority over sin, over the weapons of the enemy, in order for this to really be realized. Do you want forgiveness of sin? Of course. How is, how is your sin going to be forgiven? By being a good person? Doing better next time? No, it's by the ruler of the universe saying, you are forgiven. That's how it happens. And this is the authority that Jesus was establishing over the enemy and over his weapons of sin sin despair, chaos, disease. Mark is telling us here how this works. How's Jesus setting up his kingdom? The Apostle John, who was one of the first that Mark recorded to follow Jesus here in verses 16 through 20, the Apostle John said this about what Jesus was here to do. Listen, his first epistle, 1 John 3, 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. The reason... Or the devil has been sinning since the beginning, right? The reason the Son of God appeared, the reason Jesus came, was to destroy the works of the devil. Was to destroy the weapons of the enemy. That's why he showed up. John knew it. Mark knew it. Everybody who heard Jesus knew it. This is why he showed up. To show authority over the enemy and over the enemy's weapons. Now, listen to the application of this. This is really important, Christian friend. Jesus' life and message proved his power over sin, right? He was sinless. He forgave sin. That's recorded over and over and over again. He preached against sin. His life and message proved his power over sin. For those who believe the good news of God, by embracing Jesus Christ, the following will be true. The following will be true. Number one, the penalty of sin has been paid. Do you realize that, Christian friend? You will never stand in judgment for your sin, past sin, present sin, or future sin. Why? Because the king of the universe has established his authority over sin, and he's forgiven your sin. Listen to how Paul says this to the Colossians in chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. And you who were dead in the trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh. He's including all of us who have been hurt by the weapons of the enemy. Hurt by sin. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him. Who? Christ. Having forgiven us all of our trespasses. How did he do that? How did God forgive your sins and mine? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set aside nailing it to the cross. (laughs) That's really important, isn't it? Our sins have been paid for. All right? The weapons of the enemy have been crushed by Jesus. And, of course, we know Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who were what? In Christ. In Christ Jesus. So, The penalty of sin has been paid. You will never stand in judgment for your sin ever again, Christian friend. Secondly, the power of sin has been conquered. And you're saying, well, explain that to me. (laughs) I just had a problem with it this morning. Um, The power of sin, according to the Bible, has also been conquered. Of course, what is the power of sin? It's, It's a weapon of the enemy. The Bible tells us, that the power of sin has been dealt with. We don't have to give into to temptation anymore. We don't, we don't have to continue to sin, but we still do, don't we, from time to time? But we don't have to. Listen to what Paul said in Romans 6. We know that our old self, that's the pre-Christ self, that's before we embraced him and entered into his kingdom. We know that our old self was crucified with him. Who? Jesus. When we were, we were in Christ, and when he died, we spiritually died with him. All right? So, let me start again. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin, that is the weapons of Satan, might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. you are no longer slave to sin, Christian friend. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So... You must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So, if Jesus is going to establish a successful, long-lasting ministry or movement, he had better be able to conquer or set his authority over the enemy and over the enemy's weapons. Check, check, he's done both. What's the next one? Over the enemy's focus, verses 16 through 20. You might ask rightly, what's the enemy's focus? What are you talking about? If you had to take a wild guess, what would you think? What is the focus of the enemy? You see this every time you look in the mirror in the morning. You are the focus of the enemy. We are the focus of the enemy. He wants nothing more than to destroy you and me and everyone we love. We are the focus. This is Satan's focus. The Lucifer of old, God's sworn enemy, ever since God kicked him out of heaven because of insurrection, has been opposed to God and everyone God loves. Satan knows that the apple of God's eye, the pinnacle of his creation, and the focus of his affection is people. And so, Satan does everything in his power to ruin every single person. He hates you because God loves you. We are the focus of the enemy. Every human being is the focus of the enemy. Satan does everything in his power to ruin us. He blinds eyes, the Bible says. He hardens hearts, he accuses the saints, he tempts everyone. He is called the deceiver, the father of lies, the murderer, the roaring lion, the snake, the dragon, the prince of darkness, and on and on it goes, his titles in scripture. 2 Corinthians 4 4, Paul said this about Satan's activity. In their case, the God, small g, Satan, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. You know why you can't seem to make sense of the gospel to your friends when it's so simple? You're a sinner. God is holy. That causes a problem. Jesus came to solve it. How simple is that? And yet, you can talk to really smart people and it's just like, what are you talking about? This is what I'm talking about. This is what Paul's talking about. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Satan hates people, and he wants the worst for them. He promises the best, delivers the worst every single time. You've figured this out by now, right, Christian? You who've been alive for more than 30 seconds, you know that Satan's promises are never true, right? And yet we buy them. We keep buying them. Oh, this time, this is going to be fun. Of course, if sin wasn't fun, you wouldn't do it, <laughs> Right? Anyways, we're Satan's focus. And in order to establish his kingdom, in order to establish his long-lasting, successful ministry, Jesus not only had to establish authority over the enemy, the enemy's weapons, but the enemy's focus. He has to establish his authority over people. Jesus does. How did he do that? Verses 16 through 20. Clear as a bell. Tells us how Jesus establishes authority over people. Listen listen to how we did it. He said this. And God can do this. Follow me and what happened? They did. <laughs> Amazing. God says, "Hey, you follow me." And they didn't say, "Well, what are you offering?" No. Jesus said to Peter and Andrew, James and John, you four guys, follow me. What happened? They drop their fishing nets and follow him immediately, Mark's word. Immediately. They didn't have a a dialogue. They didn't sit down and talk about the pros and cons. They followed Jesus. Why? Because he has authority over the focus of the enemy. He says what happens. This is really an important point here. I'm going to get to the application in a second. But in the wilderness temptations, Jesus demonstrated his authority over Satan In his preaching, he demonstrated authority over Satan's weapons. And here he demonstrates that at any time he wants, he can take those who are blinded by Satan and sin, who are up to their necks in chaos, and restore them, reconcile them, save them, use them for his kingdom as he pleases. And he does it. Here's the application. Has Jesus called you? Have you you heard him say, your name, follow me? If so, newsflash, he's your master. He's your Lord. Lord and master, same word, right? Jesus draws those whom he will. Take this one step outside of yourself, okay? This is true of you. If he's called you, you're his. Think about the people that you wish would come to know Jesus, your children, your grandchildren, your neighbors, your coworkers, all those people that you love. And you think, if I could just share the gospel clearly, persuasively, powerfully, then they would come. Right? Wrong. Wrong. You know who saves people? Not your wit and charm, Jesus saves people. When Jesus calls them, they come. It's called by theologians the irresistible call, irresistible grace, the effective call. So, we're quick to open our mouths about politics, quick to open our mouths about sports. Some of us are quick to open our mouths about food. I've seen your Instagrams. All right. What is it with that anyways? It's mostly women. They take pictures of food. Who cares? Just eat it. I don't get it. I, someone, one of you ladies got to explain that to me. Anyways, we have, we're quick to say things about a lot of other stuff, but when it comes to Jesus, ooh, you know, Jesus calls whom he wants. He just wants you to be faithful. He just wants you to open your mouth. He just wants you to invite him to church. He just wants you to say, hey, Jesus saved me. Let's look at implementing his strategy. How did Jesus implement his strategy? He had to establish his authority, and he did so over the enemy, over his weapons, over, the, over the, his focus. But let's look at the same passage here and look at how Jesus implemented his strategy. It's fascinating. Jesus establishes authority over Satan, power over Satan, and sin, and so forth. And but at the same time, he was laying the groundwork for a lasting and effective ministry. First thing, if you're gonna have a, a top 100 or top 500 Forbes business, you're gonna to have to have a powerful message, right? You have to have a powerful message. Same with Jesus in his ministry, his movement, if you will. He had to have a powerful message verses 14 and 15. Let's focus on these for a second. After John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. First thing that Mark tells us is that Jesus had a message of the good news of God. It was God's good news. It wasn't the local business owner's good news, or the local mayor's good news, or the local physician's good news. It was God's good news. And we need good news from God, don't we? Why? Because sin is bad news, sin causes problems, sin separates us from our Creator. And so God has a gospel. God's good news is that He sent a solution and his solution is Jesus Christ. His solution lived and died for us who have been so severely impacted by sin. What great news is that? It's God's good news. He is gonna bring order out of all this chaos by the person and work of Jesus Christ. Secondly, it happened to be at the perfect time. Look at this. Jesus said, the time is fulfilled. What that means is, at the perfect time, this is the perfect time. All the the prophecies concerning the Messiah, the anointed one, the coming one, the hope of Israel, the hope of the nations, is here now. The time is fulfilled. The appointed time of God to send his son, the Messiah, into the world has arrived. The Savior is here. That's pretty good, right? That's part of a powerful message. God's good news perfect time and then Jesus says this the kingdom of God is at hand what's that mean it means the kingdom of God is here it's happening right now where is it happening look around I don't see any you know borders I don't see any soldiers I don't see anything what do you mean kingdom of God where is the kingdom of God it's in the hearts of those who follow him right isn't that what Jesus said yes my kingdom is not of this world if it were what My people would rise up. But it's not. It's in the hearts of those who follow him. One day, though, we know this, right? We know our Bibles. We've read Revelation a time or two. One day, this kingdom will become visible. It's called the Millennial Kingdom, Revelation chapter 20. In the Millennial Kingdom, Jesus himself will show up, physical form, show up, and he will actually be sitting on the throne reigning in Jerusalem. During the millennial kingdom for a thousand years jesus will be doing that and we will be with him and then in the final chapter of his kingdom after the millennial reign revelation 21 tells us that he's going to eliminate this planet and the universe around us build a new heavens and a new earth and he will reign in triune unity with us forever and ever in a new heaven and new earth Let me just, this is a side note, don't get excited. Well, get excited, but don't get worried. You aren't going to spend forever in heaven. You're going to spend forever on earth, the new earth. On this, not this planet, the new planet, the new earth, where you and I as followers of Christ in the kingdom of God will reign forever and ever and ever. That was for free. That's not even this first chapter of Mark. All right. We're talking about the kingdom of God, right? The kingdom of God is at hand. Fourthly, how do you get into the kingdom of God? This sounds good to me. I like the idea of forgiveness. I like the idea of ruling and reigning with Christ forever and ever. How does this, how can I participate? What did Jesus say? First word, starts with an R. Repent. Repent. Turn from your way, follow his way. Stop pursuing your own agenda, follow his agenda. Submit to his authority instead of following your own. That's how you repent. It's changing your mind about who's right, God or you. It's gotta be God, right? Repent. Have you repented from from pursuing your own agenda? Or are you still the king of your own world? Fifth, how else do we enter this kingdom? This is the fifth point of this powerful message. Believe in the gospel. Believe in the gospel. You know why Jesus and Paul and John, whoever records the gospel, always records it as an imperative? Let me ask you something, parents. If you come up to your child and you say, I'd like you to go clean your room. Is that an imperative? Okay, let's do an English lesson. It's an imperative. Alright? You're telling them a command. You're telling them what to do. When Jesus says, believe in the gospel, it's an imperative. It's a command. If you don't follow it, you're in sin. If you don't believe, if you don't follow, if you don't submit yourself to Christ, you are in sin. Alright? So, the command requires obedience, submission. Okay, I will believe. I'll accept Christ. I will follow him. This is what the gospel is a command to follow. And here's the wonderful thing. I want you to listen to this, because these, these are important words. God's love has made a way for sinful rebels, that includes all of us. God's love has made a way for sinful rebels to become children of God, children of God. So God's love has made a way for sinful rebels to become God's children without compromising. God's holiness or righteousness he can actually say because of his love to us in Christ he can actually say your sins are forgiven and not have compromised his holiness he's not sweeping your sins under the rug he's placing your sins on Christ who took them to the Calvary amazing talk about a powerful message we've got it right here in these two verses So, the second second part of this strategy is found in verses 16 through 20, a strategic core. So, God must come up with a powerful message. Jesus had to present a powerful message, which I just covered for you, if he's going to have an effective strategy, powerful message. And the second point is he must have a strategic core. Every effective and lasting movement in human history has had a strategic group of people at its core. You look at any successful business in American history and world history, there is a strategic group of people at the core of that group. Someone who knows what they're doing. Someone who leads in their field. It's a a group of people who are committed to this particular strategy. Without a strategic group of people being at the core of the group's identity, the movement won't last. It never does. And yet here we are 2,000 years after Jesus established his church, and it is thriving. The church is thriving. The gates of hell will never prevail against it. Some of you were here about 20 years ago when we began Sun Valley Church. You were with us when we went to East Valley and handed out flyers. You were here when we went door to door and invited people. You were here for the first eight years when we set up and tore down chairs every single Sunday. You were here. Why? Because you were the core. You were the core that God blessed this church with to keep it functioning, to keep it healthy, to keep it growing. We are a microcosm of what Jesus was doing back in the first century with his twelve. Starting with these four in verses 16 through 20. Peter and Andrew, James and John. That was his core group of guys. He gathered them for the purpose of a successful implementation of a strategy. These are the guys I want with me. Now, when an entrepreneur wants to begin to strategize, make a great company, he does this very same thing. He recruits the best, brightest, most competent people we can find. But based on what we know about these first disciples, this seems to it that Jesus missed it here. He's recruiting fishermen. Hold on. I thought you wanted a successful, potent movement. And you're recruiting fishermen? That's what it looks like to me. This was a group of lowly fishermen. How do you expect to have a successful, potent, long-lasting Movement and your core is these guys who may or may not have been able to read. They probably did, but what do you do with this? Well, Jesus chose them. I think there's a lot we can learn about God's priorities, God's preferences, by taking a closer look at why he chose these guys. Let's do that just for a few minutes. All right, bear with me. Let's examine these guys particularly, just for a second. And I want you to keep in mind, before we dig into this, that God can and does choose and save all types. He can and does choose and save all types of people. He draws the poor and the rich, the smart, the not so smart. He includes people from every background, experience, ethnicity, and persuasion. Off the table, we understand that, we we get it. But in these verses, verses 16 through 20, these were not the top prospects in the, eyes, in the world's eyes. They weren't, they weren't the best in the world. They weren't the best in Israel. They weren't even the best in Galilee. And Jesus chose them. See, God's unique approach to choosing whom he will is amazing and instructive. Listen closely if you have a hard time believing that you're part of this program. It is so common. God's method of choosing is so common in scripture, it could be called a principle. I've called it the principle of the second before the first. Not too catchy, but it works, all right? The second before the first. Look at at this. Let's start with the beginning, Cain and Abel. Who was older, Cain or Abel? Cain, right? Who did God choose? Abel. Interesting. Let's pick off some of the more well-known examples he chose Isaac the second over Ishmael the first he chose Jacob the younger over Esau the older he chose David the second king not Saul the first king he chose David the youngest of eight brothers not any of his older brothers This goes on and on and on in biblical history. The second, the less, the weaker is always chosen above the better. You're starting to feel better, aren't you? Yeah, that's the point. Listen to how how Paul explains why God does this. In 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29. For consider... Your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Here it is. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We who have been included in the kingdom of God, have nothing to brag about. None of us. I'm not here because of something I've done. You're not here because of something you've done or who you are. It's out the window, completely. We all enter on the same level. We're all in the same boat. This is a wonderful plan of God. Everything goes to his credit. None goes to ours. We are all saved by grace. None of us are saved by merit. <laughs> this, is, this is wonderful. The second before the first principle. This is really good news for those of us who aren't at the top of our class, who come in second or later in every race we've ever entered, who aren't theological scholars or brilliant sages. This is another reason to rejoice in the gospel of God. It includes people like us. Jesus chose humble fishermen to be his strategic core, not the erudite religious leaders or wealth brokers of Jerusalem. He chose a couple of sets of brothers who were common laborers, making a living on the Sea of Galilee, fishing with their dad. The world would say, loser. God would say, perfect. These guys, these four guys, mentioned in these verses here, 16 through 20, most likely had already been rejected by local rabbis for entry into theological training. They had already heard, no thanks. They weren't good enough for some reason. But Jesus strategically chose them, knowing their weakness, their limitations, their sinful practices. Jesus said, you're perfect for what I need. When God chooses someone, he grants everything required to accomplish why he's choosing them. You say, I don't have anything to bring to the table. If you didn't, God wouldn't have chosen you. You're here because of some inherent value that God sees in you that no one else does. When God chooses, he supplies everything necessary to accomplish his purposes, starting with grace. He didn't require these first four disciples to take a written test, run an obstacle course, present their financial statement, or take an IQ test. He said, you guys are perfect for what I'm doing here. There's nothing to boast about here. You come. What's the application? (laughs) I think it's pretty obvious. But have you struggled with knowing your role in God's kingdom? What am I doing here? Why did Jesus choose me? I've got nothing to offer. Well, you're, why did Jesus choose you? You say, well, I, I came to Christ in the eighth grade. I, I decided to believe on Jesus when I was in the sixth grade. Or I chose Jesus when I was, you know, fourth grade or eight years old. Or... Let me make sure you hear me. You didn't choose Jesus. No one ever chooses Jesus because of the the sinful deception of our hearts. How did it work? What did Jesus say in John 15? You didn't choose me, but I chose you. No one chooses Jesus. The only reason you're in Christ is because he chose you. Now you've got to figure out why. These early disciples figured it out. Some, not until the end. So, could it be that you're setting expectations on yourself that God never sets when it comes to your role in the kingdom of God? Is your self-worth for the kingdom of God based on what you've been told your whole life? Don't carry that into the kingdom of God. Once you come into the kingdom of God, everything changes. Everything. There's no hierarchy. There's no preferables. God establishes everything from beginning to end, and He calls whom He will. Friends, I can guarantee you this: you fit well. <laughs> you fit well. Where can you be used by God in announcing the good news of His kingdom? Where do you live? Do you have any neighbors that don't know Jesus? Where do you work? Is there a need for light in that dark place? I think so. Where do you go to church? Here? Good. Are there opportunities here? Needs here that God wants you to fill? Absolutely. Absolutely. Are there people in your life who need your touch, who need your encouragement, who need your friendship, who need your love, who need your Savior? No doubt. And this leads us to our final point under Jesus' strategy. He had a powerful message, check, strategic core, check, and then here, a good and faithful leader. He needed a good and faithful leader and he fit the bill perfectly. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I'm really not too interested in joining a group, a company, or a team whose leader is suspect and has very little chance of ever winning. Um, Newsflash: no one ever wants to be drafted by the New York Jets. <laughs> you know why? Starts with that letter. No one wants to be a loser. No one wants to be on a losing team. And so, when they get drafted by a group like that, they go, oh, my goodness. There goes my career. Right? No one's interested in joining a losing organization, including the church. The, the, the necessity... Of good leadership, of faithful leadership is axiomatic. It's basic. This is why teams, corporations, companies spend literally billions of dollars recruiting the best of the best in any given field. They want the best coach, the best CEO, the best manager possible, and they'll pay a sweet penny for it, right? Yeah. Look at who is the leader of the kingdom of God that Mark just lays out in these first 20 verses. Look at the leader he presents. He he tells us that this one is anointed and commissioned by God himself. And in verse 1, he tells us that he is God himself. There's a good start. He is the God of the universe. He is Lord, verse 3, master of all things verse 3. He is mighty, verse 7. Worthy, verse 7. He has authority over Satan, sin, and over every living being, verses 16 through 22. I'm going with him. We need a good leader. There he is. This is what Mark is saying. Jesus is starting a kingdom, and he has established authority over the enemy over the enemy's weapons, over the enemy's focus. And here's his strategy, a powerful message. This is what Jesus presented, a powerful message. He gathered a strategic core, and he presented himself as its perfect leader. Are you in? (laughs) That would be Mark's question. Are you in? All right, let's pray. Thank God for these things. Lord Jesus we humbly bow in your presence acknowledging your sovereign omnipotent uh, rule over us over the enemy over everything in this world we are humbled by your choice of us being included in your kingdom we don't understand it I'm not sure we ever will but Lord we thank you so much for your grace uh, and mercy as you've chosen us to follow you. Help us to follow you well. Help us to follow better than we have. Father, we confess to you that many times we get distracted by the world and see all the, the sparkly things that the world offers and, and lose sight, lose focus. God, help us to be all in with Christ. Help us to follow him wholeheartedly. And I pray this in his name, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.